I needed to not skate by for once in my life, and they didn't let me. At the end of the day, if you know that you don't feel good about the job, you got to be able to leave that behind. They just kept asking me to come back, and I truly love Milwaukee and Southeast Wisconsin. It's always great to be at WTMJ. This is WTMJ Conversations. Welcome to WTMJ Conversations. I'm your host, Libby Collins. If you were to record a record, where would you go? Maybe Nashville? Maybe Los Angeles, New York, Detroit? What about Grafton, Wisconsin? Well, there was a time when legendary blues musicians came together along the shores of the Milwaukee River to do just that. And joining us is Angie Mack, who's a very interesting person. She's a musical director. She is a performing artist. She's a writer, and she also has founded Ozaki Talent. The reason she's here today, though, is I want to talk to her because she is a blues educator, and she's devoted much of her energy over the past several years to bring attention to the music recorded and distributed by Grafton's Paramount Records. And I have to tell you, until just a couple months ago, I never had heard of Paramount Recording Studio. So tell us a little bit about that and how it ended up in Grafton. Well, it's a complicated story, but to simplify it, there was a company called the Wisconsin Chair Company, and they created chairs out of wood in Port Washington, Wisconsin, just north of Grafton. And they also made phonograph cabinets, and they made the phonograph recording devices that people could have in their homes. And Thomas Edison was a part of it. And Basically, the company decided to get into the recording business and create 78 records as a way to promote the phonograph cabinets. What year was that? Well, the Wisconsin Chair Company started in the the 1800s, late 1800s. But the New York Recording Laboratories started in 1917. You know, Thomas Edison began recording in 1877. Prior to that, mass communication was newspaper, telegraph, telephone. So we had 30 years prior to radio that this was the mass entertainment was these 78 records. And it was recording and archiving a part of American history for the first time ever, audio. You said that it started because of the Wisconsin Chair Company, which was in Port Washington. But at what point... Did they decide to open the studio in Grafton? They opened the studio in Grafton around 1929 to 1932. Prior to that, they were outsourcing to different places for recording. They used the Marsh Laboratories in Chicago on Wabash Avenue. In Indiana, they used the Star Piano Company, and they recorded there. They also recorded in New York. So they took these different locations and then they decided to have a recording studio in Grafton. And it was a makeshift studio. From my understanding, it was experimental. And it was basically on the second floor of an old, uh, of an old building that really wasn't used for much. It wasn't anything fancy. 
Was it just a single room? There was a large room, and then there was also a recording studio room. Now, this is the bizarre part, is I've never seen any photographs of the Grafton recording studio. So I had an old-time friend who was an engineer. His name was Don Henning. He lived in the area. And I asked him before he passed away if he could draw me a rendition of what he thought would be realistic for this recording studio. And he drew it. And basically, in the beginning years, the recording artists would sing into this giant cone-like structure. At the end of the cone was a string that hung down. And under that was a spiraling piece of wax. And the needle would etch the grooves of the vibrations from the voice going through the cylinder cone. It was called acoustical recording, and it was experimental. And these were how the early recordings were made. And then they took those wax molds, and they had various baths and made metal masters out of them. And it's quite fascinating. It's quite fascinating. And that's what was going on in Grafton. Yeah, two blocks from where I live right now. How did people learn about it? I mean, did they, when they decided to go into the production themselves here in Grafton. How did they draw musicians to this area? There were various talent scouts throughout the country. And one of the main talent scouts, his name was a guy named J. Maya Williams from the Chicago area. And he was kind of their go-to man. He was a black producer. And they relied upon him to find a lot of the up-and-coming talent that was in the Chicago area. Um, When they first began the company in 1917, they originally started recording traditional music, classical music, uh, some German, Scandinavian, Mexican music. Ethnic. Yes, ethnic. And that, that didn't do so well. But then around 1922, they saw that there was a market to record black artists and, and, and to sell them to black audiences. There was a huge market they for that. They called them what, race records? They called them race records, yes. And so in their race series alone, there were 2,300 recordings in just their race series alone. So there were, there were over 50 black musicians and artists who came to Grafton to record just just in those three years. Coming up on WTMJ Conversations. The names just go on and on and on. Blues historian Angie Mack tells us about some of the famous musicians who came to record in Grafton. You're listening to WTMJ Conversations. Welcome back. I'm Libby Collins. We're talking with blues historian Angie Mack. Who are some of the, the names that came to Grafton. Some of the names were Blind Blake, Skip James, Sunhouse, Big Bill Brunzi, who inspired Mick Jagger, the father of gospel music, Thomas A. Dorsey, Ethel Waters. She was the first black woman to be on radio. She recorded many songs for the Paramount label. The father of Boogie Woogie Music, Piano, Mead Lux Lewis. The names just go on and on and on. Louis Armstrong, King Oliver, Alberta Hunter, 
Hattie McDaniel from Gone with the Wind. I didn't know she was a recording artist. Yes, yes. And so they all would come to Grafton. Now, geographically, I'm thinking back in the 20s. -hmm. Certainly we didn't have uh, 94 or 43. It was a little bit of a drive to get here. So where would they come? Would they take trains into Milwaukee? Would they be in Chicago and then come to to Grafton? What was it like getting them here? Yeah, a lot of them came through the interurban train, which came up through Grafton. There was a drop-off point about three blocks from the recording studio, one block from my house. So... They primarily came by train. Some were driven. But it seemed to have happened kind of in the night when most locals didn't really know what was going on. That's interesting. Yeah. Because Ozaki County, certainly Grafton, Port Washington, the area, it's it's still pretty white. Right. But back then, I would imagine there were very few minorities at all, even in the county. Absolutely. So... When African-American artists came on the train, as you said, in the middle of the night, was it done deliberately so people wouldn't know they were there? Or was it just by chance that's when the trains came through? I really don't know. I have spent a lot of time thinking about it, for sure. But in the end, I don't really know. I wasn't there. You wonder, though, how they were treated. If they were there during the day, you want to get something to eat? Maybe you need to stay the night. Were there places for African-American artists in Grafton at that time where they could freely go? Well, I spent many years trying to look for hard evidence because as a researcher, you have to look for hard evidence of things. So, you know, I've spent some time looking at trying to find hotel records or newspaper clippings. You know, many years I started this journey around 2004 and I have not found any hard evidence that they stayed in Grafton. There is a part in a story by a man named Stephen Cult, and he said that Skip James alludes to the fact that he stayed in Grafton. There were boarding houses, supposedly on Falls Road in Grafton, where people would stay. I, I don't know exactly where those boarding houses are or which ones they would be, even though I, I live in that immediate area. It could have been at my house for all I know. So again, those records are probably gone, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Were there any artists other than African-American artists who came to record at Paramount? Yes, one of the big shockers is Lawrence Welk. Most people do not realize that he recorded six or eight songs in Grafton. Would that have been before he had the big band? I believe so, yeah. Yeah, I'm not I'm not an expert. I have not studied him too much. I've kind of zeroed in on certain artists. Sure. The recent one was Joe Gooman, who was a big Milwaukee Sicilian artist back in the day and um, he was recently inducted into the Paramount Walk of Fame and so I think that that was the most recent news coming out of Grafton it was published in the Ozaki Press just last week so tell us about that Walk of Fame the Walk of Fame oh goodness well when I had discovered that there was this recording studio in Grafton I was immediately confused as to why there had been a 70-year silence of not really mentioning the history locally. And so I started to 
bring it up to village officials and I started to, you know, question and, and write letters and the downtown of Grafton happened to be in the middle of a development project. And I had saw the drawings. They were going to have a clock in the middle of downtown, some benches, planters, you know, nothing too significant. And I started to talk to the village administrator, the president of Grafton, the planning commission, the historical society, and conveyed to them how important this history was. And so they changed their plans. Coming up on WTMJ Conversations, we could create another several keyboards just as large and fill them up with even more names. Blues historian Angie Mack talks about the efforts to honor those musicians who recorded at the Paramount Studios in Grafton. Now, more of WTMJ Conversations. I'm your host, Libby Collins. Let's return to our conversation with blues historian and musician, Angie Mack. At that point, did most of those officials, people you talked to, were they aware of the significance of that studio? I don't think that they were fully aware of the international impact of that studio. No, no, I really don't. So once you got it on their radar and they said, well, that's interesting. What happened next? Well, they started the downtown project and they came up with a walk of fame, which is a giant piano. And they asked me, Angie, would you help us decide who should go into this walk of fame? And I thought, my goodness, this is a really big task. I can't do this alone. And so I gathered a team of people from around the world and together we decided, okay, um, these are the first few people who should be inducted into the Walk of Fame. And then I've been providing the names to the village of Grafton ever since. And the keys are almost all taken up. But guess what? We could create another several keyboards just as large and fill them up with even more names. So we're not even getting all of the people in the Walk of Fame. So it's just it's still something in its early stages. It is. Yes. How did you determine who should go there? Well, I had relied upon an international team of people, and we had a voting process. And basically, it had something to do with the level of influence that they had on worldwide music, you know, number of recordings, primarily their their influence level. So that first year, the people who were inducted were Charlie Patton, father of the Delta Blues, Ma Rainey, mother of the blues, Blind Lemon Jefferson, country blues artist, Skip James, Thomas A. Dorsey, father of gospel music, and Henry Townsend, who was the last surviving artist from the Paramount label from the St. Louis area. What songs were recorded there that we might know? Oh, goodness. Hard Time Killing Floor by... Skip James, although he tends to attract guitar players. Goodness, off the top of my head, there's so many. 2,300 songs. Were all recorded at that studio? Not all. Like I said, in the early years, they used New York, Indiana, and Chicago. And so people like the early jazz artists, like Louis Armstrong, King Oliver, those were recorded in the New York and Chicago area. So jazz, 
jazz wasn't really recorded in Grafton. It was primarily the blues artists who recorded in Grafton. There were also gospel recordings as well. The artists that they brought here, did they consider them to be sort of lesser known people, people who hadn't quite made it yet? Yeah, I think they were popular in the areas that they lived in. Um, and a lot of these songs have re- been redone. Now, going back to what titles would we recognize, a lot of people might recognize the song I'm So Glad by Cream. That was written by Skip James. And originally recorded in Grafton. Yes, yes. Another one is one of the most popular blues songs is called Baby Please Don't Go. And it was written by a woman named Bessie May Smith, not the Bessie Smith. Bessie May Smith recently got inducted into the Paramount Walk of Fame. And she's attributed to writing that song, Baby Please Don't Go, one of the most redone blues songs there are. Are any of the songs that were recorded here in Grafton in the National Archives? They've had influential impact, you know, around the world, to be honest. So there are some in in the Regenstein Library. There's some in the UW-Madison area. There's a lot of collectors. In fact, I originally found out about this recording studio through the world's biggest record collector. His name is John Tefteller. John Tefteller is actually who broke that 70-year silence, in my opinion. And in what way did he do that? Well, when I, was, when I first moved to Grafton, I was just minding my own business, raising three little boys. I was recording my first album in my home, minding my own business, and I got this letter in the, in the mail, and it said, do you have any records in your basement? I am a record collector, and I'm staying at a hotel, and if you have any records, bring them to the hotel. And at first, I thought it was just some spam. I'd never seen anything like this before. And so, you know, I tossed it in the garbage, and I thought, this is weird. I mean, being a musician, if there was a recording studio here, I think I would know about it, you know, especially in a town of only 10,000 people. I'd never heard anything about it, never saw any pictures, never anything, forgot about it. And then one day I got bored and I started to do some digging and I tried to find the historical marker that was erected around that same time and kept driving past it and finally went to the library and they told me to get in touch with this man in the Netherlands. His name is Alex Vandertoek. He wrote the book, Paramount's Rise and Fall, then a sequel, the new Paramount Book of Blues. He's a world-renowned scholar on this topic, but he lives in the Netherlands, and I live in Grafton. And around 2003, I said, Alex, nobody knows about this. My husband at the time happened to be a really good web designer. So I said, Alex, why don't we put something on the internet about this record label because at that time you couldn't really find much and so we created paramountshome.org as a volunteer labor of love and it won the wisconsin historical society website award in 2006 because we were archiving on the internet before many of the libraries even were and it produced a global a global effect 
and it really, really raised awareness where people previously had not known a whole lot about it. Still ahead on WTMJ Conversations. He inspired Mick Jagger and Keith Richards and Cream. Blues historian Angie Mack talks about the impacts those artists who recorded at Paramount Studios in Grafton have had on today's music. You're listening to WTMJ Conversations. Welcome back to our conversation with blues historian Angie Mack. I would imagine the individuals who recorded there, or even those who were part of the support system, are long gone. But what about their descendants, their children, their grandchildren, nephews, nieces? Do you ever hear from any of them? I did, yes, back in the day. I tried to find as many as I could to interview. So I did do some interviews. I was able to interview Skip James' nephew. I was able to interview the children of a talent scout. Alex had done a lot of interviewing. I had done a lot of interviews with people locally who have since passed. So I did a lot of work to find any and as much information as possible. The father of gospel music, Thomas A. Dorsey, his niece actually has a church in Chicago, and her name is Dr. Lena McLynn, and she's a vocal coach for people like Jennifer Hudson, and she's also a pastor. And she invited me to come to their 100-year celebration for the church to sing. So I got to do that several years ago. She's still alive. What did they say about your efforts? I don't really know. I think they're surprised. I still don't think that people understand the magnitude of this history and the influence that it had and continues to have this day. You mentioned the one individual who inspired Mick Jagger from the Rolling Stones. What are some of the specific impacts on today's music of what these musicians did in Grafton? Like I said, there were a lot of beginners with the label. Hattie McDaniel from Gone with the Wind, she recorded for the Paramount label. We all know what Gone with the Wind has done, you know, in the world of film and the hearts and minds of people around the world. And she was the first African-American to ever win an Oscar. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And she recorded Dentist Chair Blues. What a great title. Yes. Now, another thing that people, most people don't know, we all know it's a wonderful life. Sure. Now there's a Nick's bar scene, and you see a man playing piano in the corner. His name is Mead Lux Lewis. He's the father of Ragtime Piano, and he inspired Jerry Lee Lewis. You know, we all know Great Balls of Fire. He inspired Fats Domino. We all know Blueberry Hill. Big Bill Brunsey inspired Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. Skip James inspired Cream, and also it was done by Deep Purple. Thomas A. Dorsey, he trained Mahalia Jackson, and Mahalia Jackson started working with Aretha Franklin. Thomas A. Dorsey's influence was phenomenal, and I think that his influence has yet to be fully discovered. He was really groundbreaking in the world of blues and gospel, and that all influenced, you know, R&B, hip-hop, all of that stream of music. 
Coming up on WTMJ Conversations. They started to just fling the records into the river. They would throw them up into the sky and shoot at them. Blues historian Angie Mack reveals what happened to some of the actual records that were pressed right here in southeastern Wisconsin. You're listening to WTMJ Conversations. Welcome back to WTMJ Conversations. I'm your host, Libby Collins. We're talking with blues historian Angie Mack. Have you heard from any current musicians since the Grafton uh, Walk of Fame for Blues has started? I mean, obviously you've gotten a lot of press. Has anybody reached out and said, wow, in Wisconsin, how did this happen? Yes, a lot of people. I mean, a lot of people can't really wrap their head around it. Yes, I mean, I've had a lot of authors come through Grafton. I think one of the biggest surprises was there was an author named Valerie Pesigan from Russia, and he said under communism that they could not study the blues. He came to Grafton on a pilgrimage and wanted to learn about it, and there really wasn't anyone he could talk to at the time. So he had me take him on the tour in Grafton and put it in his series of books, which talk about the blues in Grafton. I've had guests, researchers from Japan, uh, Germany, obviously the Netherlands, um, a music journalist, Amanda Petrusich from New York, has come to my house, which I've nicknamed the Grafton House of Blues. Playwrights, there's word that Wim Wenders, Martin Scorsese filmmakers were in town. Jack White. What were they doing in town? They filmed a series called Soul of a Man. And there's a segment that that takes place in Grafton. So everybody knows, you know, Martin Scorsese. Jack White put together these box sets of information that won Grammy Awards. I think it was 2015 and 2016. So there's a lot of international appeal and interest, but locally not so much. What about musicians, though? I mean, you mentioned Jack White. You said that obviously Keith Richards and Mick Jagger were inspired. Any word from either of them? No, I'd love to get a hold of them. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so... Yeah, but, but, you know, I'll tell you... One musician that did not record for the label, his name is Pink Anderson. Now, we all know Pink Floyd. Sure. Pink Floyd was named after two blues guys, Pink Anderson and Floyd Council. And they were Piedmont blues musicians. Now, they didn't record for the Paramount label, but they were blues artists who traveled in medicine shows in the early 1900s and the mid-1900s. Pink Anderson... He has a son named Little Pink Anderson. Little Pink Anderson is alive and well, and he is a second-generation blues man. And he, I'm sure, would love to talk to anybody. I'm sure he'd love to perform on the right stages. He and I have done some interviews, even though his father didn't record for the label. Little Pink Anderson definitely is a name that I think should get some more attention in the music world. Yes. You mentioned one of the things that first spurred your interest was the fact that this individual was looking for records that were made by Paramount. 
sadly, none of them existed. Tell us what happened when the plant was closed down, when the recording studio was closed, and why so much of this history is gone. Well, I don't think that the people who were working for the record factory realized the importance. They they created so many records. They produced 25% of the nation's records and distributed them throughout throughout the United States. This was, you know, many years prior to radio. They were mass producing. There was a record factory, a legitimate, huge record factory in Grafton alongside of the Milwaukee River. They mass produced these, shipped them out all across the nation. They put them right on boats on the river um, and took them out? I No, I think that they were shipped through boxes, the post office, okay. train, that sort of thing. But the company started to fold due to the Great Depression. And... I mean, they were so accustomed to seeing records. They had more records that they can do with. This is the chair factory itself. Well, it's a little misleading because this was actually, in Grafton, was a record factory. This is where... That's all they produced. Yeah, there were some years before where, where some chairs were produced by the Northern Chair Company. But the, the most of the chairs and the phonographs were made in Port Washington, Sheboygan, at this time, the record factory, where they mass-produced records, shipped them to households to be listened to on their Victrolas, it started to close during the Great Depression. They had so many records. The employees weren't treated well. They were told, I think, on Christmas that they were going to lose their jobs. And many of these people lived in the immediate area of this record plant. And they started to just fling the records into the river. Some of the locals told me that they would throw them up into the sky and shoot at them. They, I mean, there was just so many records. They would dump them. So what I did was I contacted the national show PBS History Detectives. I told them the story, and I said, I think we got to do some digging here. So they came with a scuba diving team. I worked with the producers of that show for about a year, and they asked all kinds of questions, and they came to Grafton. If you go onto YouTube and look up Lost Musical Treasure, you can see that segment that aired nationwide. And it talks about how the records were dumped into the river, and they really were hoping that they could find some, especially metal masters, because they have the technology now where if they're rusty or broken, they can somehow fix them up. Did they find any? No. <laughs> But I think that they needed to go farther south, to be honest. But we did have someone who lives in a house along the river come by and say, you know, when we were working on our home, we were digging in the foundation and we, we actually found some records in the foundation years ago. I know there's records in Grafton. I know there's records in Milwaukee. I don't think people realize how valuable these records are. I do think that there are records around. Are they? Are you talking about valuable in terms of history or valuable in terms of monetary? Both, both. There are some records uh, that sell for large amounts of money because they're so rare. And the quality of them wasn't so good. So they break easily. But if anyone has Paramount Records... 
like I said, there's people who are true scholars that are marking down the numbers because they are still missing records. And in Alex's new book, I think he's going to come out with some new findings. And people around the world who are into this history are very excited to find out some more information about you know, some of these these artists. Coming up on WTMJ Conversations, maybe perhaps some of the answers to some of the problems that we currently face can be found in the roots. Blues historian Angie Mack talks about how she wants Grafton's musical history to be remembered. Now, more of WTMJ Conversations. I'm Libby Collins. Today's conversation is with Angie Mack who's made it her mission in life to honor the musicians who recorded at Paramount in Grafton. Angie, you're a teacher Mm -hmm. as well as a historian and a performer. When you have someone that you've taken under your wing and you're working with them and they seem to have talent, do you tell them how important the history of this music is and they need to study that as well? I actually don't. Not in all cases, no. I have found that not everybody wants to hear about it, (laughs) unfortunately. But I do have students. My approach as a teacher is a one-on-one mentor. I've been mentoring youth and adults for over 20 years. I let them take the lead as to where their musical interests and talents go. I teach everybody differently. So... I don't force my ideology on anyone as an instructor. I feel like my job as an instructor is to facilitate whatever voice that they have. My job as an instructor is not to steer their own voice. I'm passionate about people using their own voice, their own interests, their own sounds, if that makes sense. Finally, Angie, 100 years from now, what would you like people to say about what has been uncovered in Grafton and the fact that now there is a blues walk to commemorate this? I would like people to say that, you know what, many of the answers to our society might not necessarily be in things in the future, such as artificial intelligence. Maybe perhaps some of the answers to some of the problems that we currently face can be found, and I believe this wholeheartedly, in the roots. I think the roots have been hidden. Why? That's a different story for another day. If we look to the roots and see that we all have contributed to American culture as we know it today, that we have more in common than not, I think the answers can be found in these roots. You know, I believe that vibrations continue. And these vibrations were in the immediate area that I live in. I believe that those vibrations have a message. And I believe that the truth needs to be told about these artists and and the substantial influence that they've had on all of our lives. I think it's time to give them proper credit and proper due. I'm happy there's a walk of fame, but I do believe we need to have more. We do need to let kids know in the classroom about these artists. And that's where I would get passionate to share that. Not in a one-on-one situation. I would love to go into schools. I'm happy to give tours. I'm happy to share with anyone who's interested about this history. Because, like I said, it was kind of covered up for 70 years. Angie Mack. Blues historian and also the founder of Osaki Talent. 
So good to have you here. Thank you, Libby. We've been talking with blues historian Angie Back about Paramount Recording Studios in Grafton. We found out some of the famous musicians who passed through, including, believe it or not, Lawrence Welk. Now, if you joined us late and you want to hear our entire conversation with Angie, go to WTMJ.com and share today's show with your friends and family. You'll also find a partial transcript courtesy of eCourt Reporters. For WTMJ Conversations, I'm Libby Collins.